welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry, and social justice. David Edward Walker is the author of Coyote Swing, a memoir and critique of mental hygiene in Native America, which was published in February by Washington State University Press. A psychologist, novelist, public speaker, poet, and singer-songwriter, Walker is a Missouri-Cherokee descendant. For more than three decades, he's worked as a professor, psychotherapist, and consultant based in Washington State, including four years as a psychologist for the U.S. Indian Health Service, IHS, and afterward more than 20 years consulting for the Confederated Tribes and Bands of the Yakama Nation. In much of his writing, including Coyote Swing, he addresses the devastating impact of the Western biomedical mental health system on indigenous peoples and their experiences across the centuries of intergenerational oppression and trauma, both personal and systemic. Five years ago, Walker wrote a series of articles for Indian Country Today that zeroed in on such oppressive practices, including the harms of psychiatric treatment on Native individuals and the history of labeling Native children with feeble-mindedness and, later, ADHD. He holds a doctorate in clinical psychology from the University of Detroit. David Walker, it is a pleasure to have you with us today. Amy, I'm very glad to be here. Thanks for having me. I have to say, your book, Coyote Swing, there is so much <laughs> packed into that book. There's a ton of history, uh, you know, colonialism, imperialism, oppression, genocide. There's your personal story in there, too, stories of youths you've worked with, stories of your time uh, with IHS and the reliance on the disease model, stories of your time working with the Yakima people. And this is all, it all comes together. It's this really absorbing read. And you dig deep into all of that. But before we get into everything, I want to start with the title, Coyote Swing. People are going to be curious why you chose that. Um, so if you don't mind, if you could tell that story uh, and why and how it relates to the topic of your book. So let me set a little context for this story, too. Um, the story of Coyote Swing uh, was told by an important person uh, in the history of Yakima Nation, the recent history, uh, William Charlie, uh, who was Klickitat, one of the bands of Yakima Nation. And uh, William Charlie was telling this story to his friend, Lucillus Virgil McWhorter. Lucillus Virgil McWhorter was a real personality and um, an early activist at Yakima Nation, a white ally who came from Ohio and wanted to basically be a cowboy. And at the turn of the last century, in, in uh, early 20th century, he had a ranch adjacent to Yakima Nation and befriended quite a lot of Native people, learned to speak the language, and uh, became very close friends with William Charlie, uh, who, who told him this story. So I'm, I'll read the story, and then I can explain why it, it informs the title of the book. Here it is. The cat belongs to the white man and goes ahead of his travels everywhere. The white man followed cat to America, which until that time belonged to the red man. Coyote, Spelii, was preparing to bring the Indians to a higher stand in life, bring them to education in a written language. Cat did not want this, so he fixed to get rid of Coyote. So he fastened a great swing to the sky. 
It was a big swing, and the people could swing far out over the world and be brought back by the swing again to their own country. Coyote came along and wanted to swing. Cat let him get in the swing and began swinging him. He shoved the swing farther and still farther out until finally Coyote saw the ocean. He liked this. He asked to be swung over the water, which was done. Then he asked to be sent still farther that he might see what was on the other side of the ocean. Then Coyote shoved him harder and Coyote saw the land on the other side. He wanted to see still more and Cat swung him far out over the land beyond the ocean. The swing came back empty, and Coyote was never again heard from. He is supposed to have grown dizzy and fallen from the swing. It is believed that he landed in Germany, for those people are the wisest of all nations, more inventive, more learned than any other country. Coyote is supposed to have continued his work over there, for he had no way of returning to the land of the Indians. Thank you for reading that. Sure. And so when I came across that story in a collection of stories pulled together by a folklorist named Donald Hines, uh, you know, it was coming from the Looseless Virgil McWhorter uh, archives, uh, which I think are at University of Washington. And I, I came across that story and I thought it so captured my sentiments uh, about uh, forced assimilation and uh, uh, voluntary assimilation and the, the dangers therein. This is basically what I feel William Charlie is speaking to, uh, to his white friend as he tells this story, uh, letting him know that, you know, this is, this is kind of a warning feature, you know, that, that voluntary assimilation of new ways and new, new cultural ideas can quickly lead to being trapped. And, and for a Yakima person, loss of connection to, to the sacred land of the Yakima uh, would be just a, a horrible thing, okay? And so, and so that's that's kind of the message there that you lose your ways. And Coyote, of course, is the hero trickster of the Yakima people. So, so we see Coyote kind of get himself ensnared in this, and then, and then he can't come back. So that that entrapment, in in many ways, that's what you're talking about in the book. Kind of the loss of agency, the redefinition by colonists of what it means to be uh, a native people and also the entrapment in the in the mental health system entrapment in so many different contexts is that what you're talking about yes i'm 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 talking about that and i'm also what i'm trying to do uh, is i'm trying to use this history which is not a well known history it was not well known to me and i really dived into the research uh, trying to figure out what was the history of the mental you know, the Euro mental health movement in Indian country. What's the history of that? Where did that come from? I really wanted to understand that as a person who was working with Native people. And, you know, in doing that, in, in pursuing that, I discovered that um, it was very relevant to contemporary times, to now, to right this moment. Okay. And I wanted to understand. I coined the term, it's all kind of through the book, various places, uh, you know, because psychologists are fond of creating terms, uh, generational carry, you know, and, and I, I wanted to come up with some way of in encapsulating how does this, these kinds of sen sentiments and beliefs and ideologies co come down through generations and, and become almost uh, so routinized that they're practically unconscious, uh, particularly in the, in the minds of, of mental health providers, so-called. Yeah, I was struck by that term, generational carry, um, and this idea that history 
uh, and its literal and figurative assaults on native culture and traditions and, and people, both broadly and individually, um, genocide and everything, that, that that history is still present in the lives of, of native people. Um, and in ways that I think a lot of people don't, don't consider they, or they, or they hear about the data and they, they take it for granted and they don't connect the dots. Like the high suicide rates, alarming suicide rates for, especially among young native people. Um, and, you know, tribally enrolled native people, as you point out, have the shortest life expectancy and the highest mortality rate and they're facing poverty and powerlessness and um and i and i realize it's it's just so much going on but i i love the way you kind of said well generational carry it's not it's not that the past is past the past is is present in so many ways right and this is one of the things that i had to kind of do for myself in writing the book is is kind of re thinking what do we mean by history if we break it down to his story or her story or their story okay um the yakima people the native people in general because it's not just yakima people on yakima reservation but but the, the native people in general that i've known frequently are very uh exceptional historians and uh, often uh, know many stories passed down to them through their elders about what has happened to them and what continues to happen and what is happening, okay? Um, so that I um, uh, needed to be educated, I needed to be taught. And my own experience, uh, particularly at Yakima, was one of, uh, as I say in the book, kind of um, what an academic might call sort of a, a re-socialization experience, although I've never been particularly well socialized. And, uh, you know, so I was I've quite open to it and, and uh, wanted to know. I, I really felt, for example, from the very start that uh, the psychology of Yakima people is located in their spiritual traditions. There is no post-enlightenment split between the mind and the spirit. And so that's where it's located. And so I had a duty as a person coming from outside trying to serve that to try to understand what does that mean? You know, let alone the idea that I'm coming as an English speaker um, and encountering people who have been literally robbed of their language in many respects. So their language um, you know, still continues and they're still fluent speakers on the reservation, but that language actually contains different ideas and different concepts in different ways than I was raised to think or feel. And that, that interests me too, the, the, the language element, um, which you address at various points in the book and the, the idea of, of, of having even the federal government define who is technically native and, and, or in a, in a federally recognized tribe. Um, whereas it's from the native people's standpoint, they have different modes and approaches to defining that. And, and that I thought was a really interesting piece of it as well is kind of the power of language. And I know anybody who reads Madden America or listens to this podcast knows the power of language and the, um, the empowering force of using your own language and saying who you are, like, and, and defining yourself. That's a huge piece of the move toward empowerment. Right. I was charged with a kind of responsibility uh, by my Kala, Lavina Wilkins, 
who uh, was a manager uh, for a long, long time, she's now sort of semi-retired, but uh, of the Yakima Nation language program, Ishkisin Sinwit. And um, she would often say to me, as she was explaining certain things and teaching me, she would say, it's very difficult for me to express what I'm trying to tell you in English. And she had been raised in, in Ishkinson Sinwit, so. Well, that's really interesting. But but um, could you back up a little bit and explain her role a little bit? You used the term, and if you could just speak to the significance of her role in your, in your life and what that term means. Yeah. Kala is an endear- a term of endearment that means grandma, you know, and she's basically my adopted grandma. Um, she's not quite old enough to be entirely my grandma, but I see her that way. And uh, she's a fount of wisdom for me. Um, and uh, I met uh, Kala first when uh, we were talking uh, as a result of conferences that we did, uh, Pathways to Hope and Healing conferences on the reservation in the early 2000s. And um, we kind of combined efforts because she had these um, virtues that she was teaching in the schools in the uh, in the language, in Ishkisin Sinwit. And uh, she she wanted to talk about that in relation to what we might do together in the school. Uh, we were working somewhat uh, um, sort of happenstance in Yakima Nation Tribal School and also out in White Swan, one of the reservation towns in Mount Adams School District. So we kind of combined forces and we took the virtues that she created as a centerpiece to the program programming loosely written, uh, that we that we put together. And so she became really important to me um, just from the standpoint of trying to be a good helper. Um, but I, we got close together as friends, and I basically asked her at one point, can I call you Kala? And she said, of course. So this, this kind of came about through that that kind of way. And, and I've spent so much time with her over the years. We've gone through a lot of thick and thin with different personal and professional issues and troubles and this sort of thing. So uh, she's uh, she's still with us and she's quite elderly at this point, but I talked to her very recently. So, so um, you know, she's a real special person. Well, thank you for, for telling that story and, and explaining her role. Um, but you, you just made a reference to some of the professional struggles you've had. So I, I if you don't mind, I'd like to go back to those four years that you worked in the IH, that IHS clinic um, from what I think it was 2000 to 2004, and um, in, in the opening of your book, uh, you call it "Bringing Bringing the Song Out," and you write, "This book is like a song that arose out of grief." I remember saying, "I have to write something," as I walked out of a crisis center in 2002 after trying to quote unquote evaluate a native young man so sedated by psychiatric drugs he couldn't recall his own name. Wow. Um, so if you could just speak a little bit to the, the impact of, of that on you, how that, I mean, was that an epiphany? Did that make you start thinking in different terms about this work you were doing? I think I already came into Indian country with a somewhat unusual perspective on um emotional difficulties that people have. You know, I've never been a, um, I've never been a, a fan of the mental illness, uh, medical model, uh, psychiatric kinds of ways because of the reductionistic, I, I consider human beings expan- expansionist beings. And I, I, you know, so I, I, I was immediately 
shocked by some of the things I saw. I should also mention the caveat that I had to be really careful in uh, the people and the, uh, the experiences that I had in depicting them in the book. And, you know, there's all sorts of little end notes that refer to uh, these being composite uh, individuals. And so I, I'm always careful to say that doesn't the stories don't refer to any particular individual, although that particular story you're mentioning, I can I feel I can go ahead and say that was one person that that happened to. Okay, so everything that has to do with more extensive cases that I mentioned of people, you know, going through different problems with the mental health system, I composited as many of those as I could because I wanted specifically to avoid identifying people. So yeah, I was shocked, um, dismayed, and basically, you know, I was pretty much alone in that perspective. This was business as usual. And so I really ran up against a lot of resistance to even commenting on such things, which was quite foreign to me from the perspective of just collaborating and being a co-consultant with people and just being a helper in general. I, I, I really um, ran into a lot of resistance to just talking about the, the ways that people were thinking. And I'm talking about mental health providers themselves. You know, uh, it was very much a shock. So it was it was a shock to me to see that, for example, that IHS had a very mainstream, uh, if, don't mind me saying, kind of white Euro approach to mental health in Indian country. It was, you know, there was very little cultural uh, adjustment or, or rethinking of it. So... One thing I'm I'm particularly curious about is the role, and, and which is really critically important, is the impact of all of this uh, for youths, uh, especially youths in the in the foster system. Um, yeah, could you speak to that a little bit? Um, how they endure their own harms and different forms of oppression, and wind up on you know cocktails of drugs and. I know that's, again, another huge topic, but... It is indeed. Um, and thanks for asking. Uh, I had a lot of contact with uh, Native foster youth um, while I worked at IHS and afterwards uh, when I was working for Niktawakt, which means Good Growth to Maturity, and that is the culture-centered program that uh, Levina Makala and numerous other community members uh, helped to support the creation of, which was very short-lived, but it was a grand experiment. And so we got to know a lot of displaced youth, you know, uh, and uh, Native youth are on nationally in in uh, in the United States are about twice, a little bit more than twice uh, as likely to end up in the foster care system. In Washington state, they're somewhat over four times more likely to end up in the foster care system. And this does have to do with uh, poverty. It has to do with uh, family violence. Uh, I see family violence very uh, generationally tied to uh, circumstances having to do with institutionalization in American Indian boarding schools and uh, sort of the descendant upheaval in family relationships that emerged from that period. And so you end up with a circumstance where you can kind of see the, the cross-pollinization of these larger oppressive phenomena in creating 
you know, the English language category of the native foster child, the native foster youth, okay? And I got to know these kids. And I would often see these kids in various difficult situations, crisis situations. So I would see them uh, in tribal jail. Uh, I would see them in juvenile detention, uh, or they would be brought in by their foster parents. And, um, you know, I would, I would meet with them. And their lives were filled with all sorts of complexities, um, com- you know, things having to do with obviously having been through traumatic violence in, in their past, uh, physical, sexual uh, violence, many, many losses of important people in their lives, uh, deaths by violence, deaths by um, uh, car wrecks uh, from substance abuse issues and these sorts of things. And I, for some reason, having been a former dysfunctional youth, had a pretty a decent time being able to connect with them, um, mostly by uh, using the word shit. Um, If I used the word shit uh, in a sentence, um, it was almost always a bridge builder to, wow, this white guy has a potty mouth and, you know, (laughs) I can relate to him. Okay. So this was, this was one of my strategies in trying to make, make a relationship there. Well, you know, I'm laughing, but that makes total sense to me because in a, in a in a conversation with youths who have been through so much, you're using a word that's not a label. I mean, you're using a word that's a real word, that's authentic. They know what it means, and it also it also acknowledges what they're going through. <laughs> Instead of saying, "Let's go do an intake assessment," I'd be saying, "Tell me a little bit about the shit you've been through." And see, any human being could answer that question and not feel like they're being judged. It's like, you know, it's like the the conversation, so many of these conversations around the medical model versus other approaches boils down to, oh, you know, what's wrong with you versus what happened to you? Or as you say, what shit have you been through? (laughs) Right. Right. So this was a way, this was a way of getting kids talking and, uh, uh, Kala and I also, and, and also another good, uh, wonderful person, a Blackfoot uh, woman named uh, Verna. Uh, Verna is, um, uh, was also a big helper, and she was a counselor in uh, both the school systems I, I consulted in. And we created the Pathways Circles together, where we basically took a non-directive approach. There were some outside boundaries and parameters uh, to kind of structure it somewhat, but we kind of let the kids kind of decide what to talk about. And yes, they were quite tentative at first. And sometimes kids kind of acted up and this sort of thing. We just worked with that. And because Verna and Kala both treated that as a sacred space, as a spiritual space, um, which had often a blessing at the beginning of each circle, um, it set the tone where kids would open up with one another. And uh, that helped quite a number of foster youth to make connections with their peers uh, in ways that they did not really have solid family connections, obviously, given what they'd been through. So that that was really particularly helpful to, to foster kids. You know, I actually, I was going to ask you about that, about the circles uh, that you participated in with, with these youth. And I, I'm really interested just generally in the power of community when it comes to healing. And it's something that I think the Western model too often overlooks or at least down, downplays. Um, 
So in your book, uh, you describe per- participating in those circles. Uh, it, it, what is that healing about this in a way that the medicalized approach isn't? Is it the nature of community? Is the nature of a kind of the inclusiveness le- and in allowing youths to tell their own story or to be more active in, well, in this case, it, in a circle, but it, it's not treatment, but it's it's healing, right? I think that it's useful, Amy, to kind of take a kind of take the topography of it all and kind of move out a little bit and say, you know, I'm coming from, but having been raised in a Euro-American culture, I have Native heritage in my family, uh, but I'm a white guy, all intents and purposes, and I'm proud of that heritage. I I do say about it, I do declare it, you know, because I don't want to forget my grandmothers like my past generations did, okay? But also, you know, I'm a white guy coming into these this community, okay? And so I am immediately in a cultural encounter that's going to highlight my own culture, okay? Which, as a, as a white person, is not immediately apparent to me. That's the problem of ethnocentrism writ large, okay? And what I discovered was um, a kind of sadness, really, at the incre- intensity of individualism and its effects on human beings, okay? We live in, you know, what is one of the most, indivi- really the most individualist society in the world. And where we might speak to community, I don't think it's really um, as familiar to a Euro-American person to encounter the degree of community that I encountered in Indian country and the strength of that, you know. And, uh, of course, you know, I have Native friends who would say, well, there's a downside to that. Everybody knows your business and all this kind of stuff. But, (laughs) you know, the, the truth of it is that that's a huge strength and a huge asset. And, and it was problematic for me as I went in, um, because, I felt bereft, okay? I felt like, wow, this is amazing, you know? Until I was brought into circle, okay? So as I came to be included and invited and brought into the circle, I realized, wow, this is this is really a life-changing experience, you know, whether it was going to sweat lodge or being, you know, involved in ceremonies of particular sorts or simply gathering in a circle. I realized how fundamental a circle is to human experience. It's the great equalizer. There is no person speaking to you, giving you a PowerPoint presentation up at the front of the room. There is no person who is elevated above others as being the knowledge bearer, whereas no one else knows anything, okay? Instead, any knowledge you have to impart or give is seen on equal terms with everyone else. I would say it fundamentally changed me as a human being, as my one of my mentors, longstanding bear chief, who was Blackfoot, who tragically passed away in 2010, would tell me, be a real human being. That's what the circle brought, provides for you. That's profound. I, I mean, your description of it in the book is really powerful, and your description of it of it right now. Uh, and you know what, what strikes me too is, you're right. The, the 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 Western model, not just of medicine but of thinking, our whole mindset is so linear and hierarchical. And what you're describing is the inclusiveness of the circle. And when you're in, I mean, 
I think about this a lot. Like when you think about other people, humanity, like if we were in a circle (laughs) and we weren't stepping away from each other, we would see one another as human beings. We wouldn't demonize one another. And that's actually the gist of the book is is people should be seen as human beings. (laughs) And you're being inclusive, which is the nature of the circle. Yeah. And so we get on circles. I love to talk about circles and I could go on and on about it. But I tell you what. You know, this whole other facet of it is we're also captured by the culture that we come come into, okay? And it's it's better to be in a circumstance where your culture is brought forward in front of you and to be able to see it and to see the culture of mental health itself, you know? I wrote the book out of a felt sense of moral duty to try to expose that culture in bold relief in relation to native culture, you know, to kind of highlight how different it is, you know, and where did it come from? Yeah. Well, you talk about that in in the book, the uh, saying that basically the the psychiatric establishment, the system is, is complicit. Psychology, the Western approach to psychology is complicit in all of that. Um, at, At what point did that hit you? Did you get that sense in your work? Well, you know, the uh, I think probably the, the most important uh, single source that that kind of nailed me and hit me over the head was Pamina Yellowbird. She wrote a paper called Wild Indians about the the blessing of the uh, cemetery for the Hiawatha Asylum for Insane Indians, uh, which is located in the middle of a golf course in Canton, uh, South Dakota. So. Pamina's paper really alerted me. I was going through a lot in uh, getting in trouble at the Indian Health Service for my views at that particular moment. I I read that paper and it sort of blew things apart for me because when I saw, I had not heard of Hiawatha Asylum for Insane Indians. And when I, I read about it, I was like, okay, now I see a professional ancestry here. Okay. And now I'm in it. I'm, 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 I'm a descendant of this, of this, practice the socialization practice you know my graduate education i never heard about this no one ever alerted me to this working you know beginning to work with indian people and so and so it kind of blew my mind to see that paper yeah your description of the hiawatha asylum uh in the book is gut-wrenching um just the the, the inhumanity um and you also talk about the boarding schools and the inherent um, bigotry and dehumanization and the labeling of kids and um, the assumptions within the educational system that Native kids are, uh, quote-unquote, feeble-minded. Um, and today, they're being diagnosed with ADHD. And is, that's all sort of part of this, this huge, uh, oppressive system full of assumptions about the Native peoples. Yeah, that was another discovery was to see how long that feeble-minded label was used. You know, I was able to find this Israeli doctor, Dr. Frankenstein. He had written about a feeble-mindedness in the late 1960s, early 1970s, okay? And his descriptors for feeble-mindedness were virtually the same as the descriptors for ADHD. Wow. you know, my I've been around in this work for such a long time that I actually saw attention deficit 
a disorder come out and then attention deficit hyperactivity disorder come out and they came out of, you know, minimal brain damage and MBD and all these other abbreviations. And so when I saw the connection to the word feeble mindedness, that really was a, a kind of a discovery like, okay, now we kind of see how the heritage of this idea directly plays into ADHD. Not to mention the fact that up until about 2010, uh, Native boys, Native American boys in, in the United States led the pack in being diagnosed with ADHD uh, per capita. And um, that shifted uh, markedly as the Center for Disease Control put, uh, put an and numerous other parties put an emphasis on uh, ADHD diagnosis among so-called marginalized communities and children of poverty. Okay, so that so then the you know other groups other ethnic groups began to catch up to to those numbers among among native boys so um i really did begin to see adhd as you know basically a school based diagnosis that has to do with um you know kids not fitting in and and not really need not being able to learn and in schools that are tremendously underfunded well and it's i mean also isn't it also a part of this deeply entrenched bigotry um, that's hard, frankly, for white people in the wider system to acknowledge, like uh, not recognizing the bigotry that's innate in the system and in our attitudes toward Native peoples. Um, I'm wondering, and I realize this is, I, I kind of know the answer to the question, but it has to be asked, why isn't all of this part of a wider conversation, <laughs> a wider conversation about oppression of Native peoples, a wider conversation about uh, mental health services, a wider conversation about what it means to be human. Um, wh why aren't we having that conversation more broadly? I, you know, I can only, I'll, I'm just forming my opinion here, but I, you know, my, my feeling about it is we live at a time where there's a kind of a tension between two forces. Uh, academically, um, but also, I would say, culturally. And it has to do with what is American history, okay? And, uh, you know, is American history uh, the um, unearthing of the real history, um, which contains certainly pluses, but also significant minuses, okay, of a country founded on slavery, of a country, you know, founded through uh, the oppression uh, and uh, forced removal of people from the land that was theirs, okay? You know, is that the history of this country? Or is it a revised kind of homogenized history um, that uh, is familiar to white Euro-Americans, okay? So that when you begin to illustrate various darker sides of that history, okay, you provoke uh, that, that contingency of people um, because that's not what they're used to and, and they don't really want to know that because it seems to sully the uh, reputation of this country and undermines it in some way, which I think is absolutely untrue. I think that the it is the pathway to uh, helping this nation to talk about um, 
the real deal of what really has gone down in this country and to integrate that with uh, more positive views that one might have of, of what this country has to offer. Okay, so that's the tact. I think, but I think that those tension points between those two forces, they're very evident. If you look at the uh, Texas Board of Education, which has an enormous sway over, um, over textbooks that are chosen in high school for American history, uh, you know, th they've been singled out in their choices, okay, for uh, not, uh, not uh, placing an emphasis and even really distorting Native history, okay, not to mention the history of slavery in the U.S. And of course, within critical psychiatry circles, the, the dominant paradigm that's being challenged is the, 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 the psychiatric disease model. But you're, you're talking about that and about the wider paradigm, this narrative that gets told and voices that speak out saying, no, you should tell the whole story or a different story, they get suppressed. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think if you link that, that history to what the just the basic ideologies are that inform mental health provision and you start to say oh the mental health movement is actually intrinsically tied and complicit to this history um that really blows people's minds and they push back on that because it's kind of like you took the rug underneath them you pulled the rug out from underneath them so there's a lot of resistance to that idea um it's it's interesting because when i wrote coyote swing i I knew that native people and um, native friends would, would definitely and colleagues would would read the book, but I wasn't really charged with that uh, responsibility. I was specifically charged by my kala and several other people, but my kala was centered to this, to write a book for white people, Euro Americans, so they could understand us and understand themselves better because they've lost their way. And I took up that mission, and boy, I, you know, it took me a while. <laughs> that was actually um, <laughs> one thing I wanted to ask you about, um, the sense of mission that you had when you were writing it, and um, what next for you on that sense of, uh, on that mission, and also what responses you've gotten. Have you gotten blowback? Have you heard from people whose eyes were opened? Have you heard from people who fell into defensive mode? I mean, what, what's been the response? So I had this sense of mission that was kind of a charge with me, but um, it became also kind of a, a way of um, protecting myself, of defending myself, because um, I couldn't connect with what the dominant view was, okay? Uh, and I wasn't going to practice that way. And so what am I talking about? What do I do? What do I believe, you know? And so as I encountered this history, I, I started to write about it. But I'm still, I'm still aware that, oh, you know, there's a lot of connection with what I'm saying uh, among Native people themselves and people who read Native media sources, okay? And yet there's a big pushback that I'm feeling from certain professionals in Indian country about what do you think you're doing writing that kind of stuff? Okay. And that put me in a predicament where you better finish up this book and you better really articulate why you feel this way and kind of come up with some ideas about alternative ways of approaching so-called mental health in Indian country, which I believe should be owned in the indigenous languages of whatever that means to Native people. And do you think there's 
any sense or chance or what are, what what is the prognosis moving forward? Can there be change? Um, how would that change be embodied, instituted? What 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 do you envision? First things first. I mean. I've characterized myself as a bit of an earthworm, you know, so people like me who are troublemakers, you know, we kind of churn up the soil of what's out there and kind of loosen it up, you know, by critiquing a system. And then there is an opportunity to, for reseeding and growing new ideas and new ways and new, new thoughts. I have some thoughts, I have some ideas, but getting back to the circle, I'm just part of that circle, okay? And so how can I set up a way of uh, encouraging people to look at new ideas and to rethink things? So I, I, you know, a generational analysis was one piece that I deliberately wanted to do. And then the other thing is to really talk about the circle and the whole idea of revisioning. You know, in the last... 20 years, I, well, 23 years since I started at Indian Health Service. You know, when I started, um, psychiatric labeling and psychiatric drugs were the dominant feature. And in many ways, they still are, okay? But there's been a shift in kind of the whys of that. Initially, it was, I think, because... Um, you know, that's the best way to go. This is the way we do mental health, okay? And now I think that there's a bit more critical nature there where tremendously underfunded agency with its own internal dysfunction that has never been really helped, good people working there who are not sponsored and supporting and bringing out new ideas, and so there's been more questioning. I've seen some evidence of that. In the broader society, the so-called dominant society, I've seen the same thing. There's been an erosion uh, of that particular biomedical view with people like you, Matt in America, you know, Robert Whitaker, all the different people who are writing in that era, uh, Paula Joan Kaplan, all the different people that I've known over the years, so many people to list there, okay? But I think that it's creating fractures in the system. And uh, we do have many possibilities there. You know, I'm very in intrigued and really like um, the ideas coming out of British Psychological Society from Luce Lucy Johnstone and crew and all the people, uh, John Reed and all those people in, in the UK with the power threat meaning framework. I, I like that. I like Eva Marie Garut, who is coming from a sociological perspective and talking more about radical indigenism, the indigenizing of these ideas that come into Indian country, being evaluated and understood and either abandoned, discarded, or reframed uh, through the sovereign control of Native people in their own ways of working with their own communities. So right now, the entire mental health system that comes into Indian country is controlled by the federal government. Even though there are, you know, tribally granted programs through the Indian Health Service, that is programs that are tribally managed, but they receive grants from the Indian Health Service, those, uh, those grants stipulate that they must follow the central manual 
of the Indian Health Service for Behavioral Health, which is strongly uh, biomedical, biopsychiatric in its perspective. So I, I want to see and hope for Native people controlling their own uh, programming and whatever they want to do with those dollars and whatever they want to do with uh, that kind of funding. Uh, and that's not currently there, but I, I, I see a general erosion possible there with all that's been going on around these controversies with the biopsychiatric model. Thank you so much. This has been an extraordinary conversation. And David, it was so great to have you. Thank you for joining us today and thank you for all your work. My great pleasure, Amy. Thanks for having me. Our guest today was David Edward Walker, author of Coyote Swing. For more information about him, you can visit davidedwardwalker.com or check out his music on davidedwardwalker.bandcamp.com. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. Visit maddenamerica.com for more news, views, and updates. 